So how about a jewelry company made and designed by a medically retired female officer? Yeah, let's support her. It's called Blue Monarch Co. You can find it on Instagram. You'll be able to check it out in the show notes. Anyways, I've been wearing this necklace from her company since January. It has come in the, I don't take it off. It comes in the shower. It comes in the tanning booth. It goes everywhere with me and it looks amazing still. Go check it out because right now she's offering you as one of my listeners, 40% off. The code is going to be right down in the show notes along with the link to her website. And you can go check out the pictures of me wearing my angel necklace on Instagram if you have any questions. Hope you check them out. Ed, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Can you please introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah. Good morning, Autumn. I'm, I'm Ed Prokop. I'm a retired LAPD commander. I retired after 27 years in January of 2021. i currently serving uh, with the Federal Law Enforcement Training Centers as the chief of the Leadership Institute. I am a Reserve Air Force OSI special agent, and I've also uh, got six or eight um, satisfactory years with the Marine Corps Reserve back in the 80s and uh, early 90s. So very, very thankful for the opportunity. This is going to be fun. You are busy. You've been busy and you've done some things, huh? Seen some things, done some things. 27 years, you said, as uh, at LAPD? I did, yeah. It was January 1994, right after the big Northridge earthquake that collapsed freeways and all that kind of stuff, and uh, right up till January 2021. And I'll be honest with you, um, you know, some of those years were like dog years, and I, I, I'd probably say the first five, eight years I would have done for nothing. What was it, like, what, what did you do? Like, so you, you have to understand, okay, because I'm, I'm from Maine. <laughs> so like our biggest police department in Maine is the Maine State Police and that make, that's like 350 on a good day. <laughs> so like, that's probably just like a department within your whole agency, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, one, you know, one thing I've, I've learned, you know, going across and spending some time with, with a, a lot of folks is we're all cut from the same cloth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly major metropolitan agencies have greater exposure to things. That, that's the only thing I think that differentiates us. And yeah, we're, we're a massive resource rich organization. You know, when I retired, we had 9,900 cops, I think about 2,500 or 3,000 um, civilian support folks in, in different capacities, mechanics, 911 operators, uh, clerks, analysts, that kind of stuff. Uh, my last command, I, I was supervising 1,400 uh, personnel. And, you know, in a budget of probably about 120 million in salary alone. Wow. So what are some of the things like, can you tell me in in your 27 years, you must've done a lot of things. Like what, what are the, some of the things you've, like, where did you work? What within your agency? So I I started, so the LAPD has got 21 patrol divisions. Okay. And five of them are in South Los Angeles. And that's where I started after the academy in August. I graduated in August or September of 94. Um, Actually, right after the OJ Simpson um, saga, I guess, and that's a circus of a pursuit that was going all over uh, the LA basin. Wow. I started in uh, South Los Angeles in a, you know, a segment called Watts. There's four or five different housing developments and it was 
you know, right after the 92 riots. So there was significant violent crime and generational gang issues. Um, so that's where I learned to learn to be the police. How, like, that, can we talk about that? Because um, I don't, I can't see you on video. Are you white? I am, yes. So what was that like? Like working in, you know, these major gang territories and they probably hated you. Yeah, they just, you know, organ, organizationally. I mean, I, I, I grew up in Connecticut and, mm-hmm. you know, not too many um, minority families in the town that I grew up in. And I started working in South Los Angeles and it, it was just incredible. I'll be honest with you, the, the, the most shocking thing to me was I started on the morning watch and that was 2330 to about 0730 at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and funny story, I mean, back then we were on obviously eight hour shifts and you started your shift the day ahead for the, for the day prior, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So my first actual day after I graduated the academy on a Friday, I was UA. I, I missed my first work day, you know, because I, I completely screwed up, you know, showing up the day before for the next work day. Um, yeah. But that's how I started my career. That's um, and then went right into to morning watch. And, you know, coming from a small town in Connecticut at eight, nine o'clock at night, the whole town is buttoned up. And when you're in South Los Angeles at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, it is like, you know, nothing I've ever seen. That was a culture shock in and of itself to me. Just the mere fact that there was so much activity, so much criminal activity uh, going on and so many people out was just, uh, it was, it was tough for me to adjust. I'll be honest with you. I bet. And like, what were like, what was going on at two, two or four in the morning? Yeah. Because like in Maine, <laughs> we're in bed. So like, what, like, what, tell me like what it was like with like just people everywhere, people on the streets or like, so, you know, uh, criminal activity, the, the folks, uh, the homeless folks that are pushing, um, you know, gang activity, drive-bys, vehicle pursuits, uh, shootings, um, burglaries, disputes, traffic collisions. It was extremely busy. I mean, very rarely uh, did we not have something to do either going from call to call or initiating some type of activity, my head was spinning. Um, you know, the first couple of months, I, I, you know, I did not feel comfortable in my job. It was just a, the learning curve was so steep. Um, and not so much on, on the police side, but just, you know, relating to what was going on. I, I was like, kind of, you know, like I fell in a black hole, if that makes sense. I've never been in something like this in my life. Um, but it was very natural. The, the folks around there, when I say folks, uh, the officers, um, you know, the, the culture, the support, the expectations. I loved it. Uh, you know, I, I love the high expectations. I love the work ethic. I love, um, you know, looking out for the officer to your left and your right. And that was what was most important, you know, to, to be a, be a good officer, obviously keep yourself and your partner safe and back each other up. And that, that was ingrained in me early on. And, and to this day, it's something I can still carry forward. Do you think that the culture is different now? Like the brotherhood wise? No. No, I don't think so. I have full faith and confidence in, you know, the, the new workforce that's coming up. You know, everyone likes to grumble and complain about, oh, the, you know, the next generation didn't have it as hard as us. Or, but, you know, I see the direct opposite. Um, you know, when I was leaving and, and interacting with these younger cops, they have tremendous experience, life experience, way above what I had at 23 when I started. You know, we're, we're talking combat veterans. Mm-hmm. IT capabilities. I mean, the folks that the LAPD uh, recruits 
just, I think, you know, obviously Hollywood has a huge impact on it. Um, but we have doctors, lawyers. I had a medical doctor, one of my gang units, uh, just crazy talent down there. Um, and the diversity in the talent is what makes that place so strong. It, it was, a, it was a true pleasure really was. And what do you think? So like we started to talk about it. So you, you've obviously you've worked in a lot of different areas within your, within the LAPD, correct? Correct. Yeah. A lot of different divisions. Yeah. So I I finished probation in uh, South Los Angeles and then I was wheeled to wheel, meaning you're, you're, you're transferred out once you're off probation after an 18 month period to a new division. And you're uh, basically a slick sleeve officer off probation and you're on your own, work with your classmate, have fun. And I was sent to Venice beach, um, happened to be summertime. And at that point we were augmenting, I think, I don't know, 40 or 50 cops from all over the city that would be assigned there. And it was a great opportunity. I was riding a bike up and down Venice Beach with a couple of pals of mine. I mean, like I said, I would have done it for nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, after that, I, I was I was just in, intrigued by the, the gang lifestyle, right? I, I never had that experience or exposure in rural Connecticut. It was just something that was always in the movies or TV shows. So I was very interested in that. I competed for a spot at the Pacific area crash, they called it back then, community resources against street hoodlums. Hmm. Um, yeah, and they changed the name, obviously, you know, uh, later and uh, as we got deeper into, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s, um, they changed it to gang enforcement detail as a result of a, a lot of different things that were going on in the city. Uh, but I started at Pacific crash and then I went to South Bureau crash which was an incredible experience. Again, it, it was in charge of four different divisions in South Los Angeles um, with a group of folks that were extremely committed. Yeah, it was part of an FBI task force. I think we had, I'd say 16 or 18 uniformed gang officers um, that worked and we were extremely busy uh, just conducting search warrants, gathering intelligence, um, identifying wanted suspects. And it was every single day was something different. Um, it was packed with excitement and, and it was just an opportunity, honestly, to hang out with your pals. And it was, it was awesome. It really was. What, what I, like stood out to you as far as, so I'm like, I'm, I'm very fascinated about the gang life. Um, obviously like we've discussed, um, I live in Maine. So, I mean, we have like, you know, everybody jokes and everyone's like, oh yeah, like you guys are just the lobster police. Actually, no, we have, we actually have um, legitimate gangs that come up from New York city and from Boston and they set up shop here and they make a ton of money selling drugs, but it's very obviously different than, um, what you have experienced. What are some things like, can you talk to me about that? Like what, what like stood out to you and like, what did you experience? Like, I mean, the the start, the, the stark contrast in neighborhoods by streets, that was that completely blew me away. Like, you know, the east side of a street could be one gang and the west side is the other or the south side or the north side. And it was that that deep, um, that structured, you know, and I think, uh, you know, a couple of things that made it easy on us is and anytime there was a wanted you know, suspect related to a gang activity back then you know, where would they go? They would go back to their neighborhood. So it wasn't that difficult of a find, right? It would be a couple of days, a couple of weeks, whatever. But it's not like they could go hide out in some other neighborhood. 
Mm. Um, and, and that was that was a real fear back then. That, that was real violence. If you're a crip and you're walking in a blood neighborhood or vice versa. And, you know, back back then, there were still flying colors, blues and reds and that kind of stuff. You had shoelaces, hats, handkerchiefs, whatever. Right. Anything. And that you would be a target mm. for nothing other than being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it was just, you know, how deep those lines are. And we're talking generations. This is not something that just spun up. This is, you know, I work with folks that arrested parents of the gangsters that were out there. I mean, just just generational, um, you know, decline in crime was was incredible. And it's just it's, it's crazy to think of, you know. And so, like, how did you how did you like because like one thing that fascinates me with your career is obviously the kind of leadership, and I really want to get into leadership, but <clears throat> so many people think that leadership is um, like a position or a title, or you can't be a leader until somebody else says that you are. But, you know, what I, what I talk a lot about is officers themselves, really, I mean, even for, you know, boots on the ground, even rookies day one, I mean, you really are a leader in society. The minute you put, you know, you take the oath and you put the uniform on. And so, like, how did you honestly, like, I'm just going to be very blunt. Like, how the hell did you survive? <laughs> like the streets out there as, you know, this, you know, white officer, who obviously from rural Connecticut, like you must have had to really um, learn how to communicate and, and really um, relate to these people. Correct. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, you know, I, I credit that to my tenured training officers. I mean, back, you know, back then when I say that, you know, early nineties, the you would have a field training officer that had 20 years on the job easy, mm. right? And, you know, and what you learn from him or her is, is how to communicate with people, how to treat people, right? We could always get out of the car and fight. That's, that's always an option. Yes. Um, but it never works out good for us. No. So if you could, you know, talk to someone or, or cut them a break or don't embarrass them in public or, um, you know, pull them off to the side, have a conversation with them. Um, that's, that's the way that you actually get effective policing done. As far as leadership, I mean, hundred percent, you put on a badge or gun, be it firefighter, whatever, you, uh, you know, military, certainly police, you stand out that you, you're expected to bring calm to chaos, regardless of what's going on. You're in the food line, uh, traffic collision, somebody gets hit walking across the street. They're all looking to you. So you are a leader. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so the leadership qualities and traits, they're all the same. Right. Le leadership can be defined by different billets and positions, but how you conduct yourself as a leader is the same. And, and, and that's what made it easy for me. Right. You know, as I rose up the ranks from sergeant, lieutenant, captain, commander, I, I just I always went back to my roots. I didn't try and be somebody I wasn't. I just kept it simple. Right. I mean, empower people. How would you want to be treated? How would you, how much latitude would you want? What did I want at that position? I just, mm -hmm. I just kept it, kept it simple. Don't complicate what do you, it. What do you like, what's some advice that you could give like a newer officer who's really trying to find their way? Like I have a lot of, I've got a lot of people who listen to this podcast who um, either want to become police officers or they're, you know, newer on the road. We do have obviously several seasoned officers, but right now I want to talk to like the newer officer. What would you like, what do you say? Like, what would you say to them as far as, you know, how to, how to build that leadership and like how to, how to, how to have them understand that, wait a minute, you, you know, you are a leader and here, here are some tips and trucks to, 
um, really be the best leader that you can be? I mean, I, I can just say um, what got me to where I was. You know, I'm certainly not this, you know, uh, leadership uh, expert or a sensei or whatever, but, you know, you have to, you have to be a good teammate, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're a trooper on the road and there's one or two of you at night or you're part of, you know, an LAPD special operations command where there's 500 folks, you have to be a good teammate. And that requires some individual effort as well. And, and I don't want to complicate that. Like, you know, it's an individual game as a police officer. You're, you're responsible for your capabilities as a part of that team. So as a younger officer, concentrate on that, your, your strength, your knowledge. Do you have the legal standing? Do you understand the differences, how a uh, consensual encounter can change? in a moment's notice? Do you understand that you're in a house and all of a sudden you had legal authority and you don't? I mean, th those are the types of things as an individual that I would tell each officer or trooper or deputy, um, know those inside and out, right? I mean, that makes you a better teammate. Be strong, physically fit. Um, I, I think I've gotten out or skirted a lot of fights in my life, just, I'll be honest with you, just because how I looked, and I, I was fortunate, tall, um, I was mandated to stay in shape just because of the special operations um, job that I had. And I was also a Marine reservist. So it was easy for me, mm -hmm. um, you know, but there, there is documented interviews and investigations with cop killers that have targeted specifically officers that look a certain way, you know, I, and, and I, I agree. I talk about I mean, this so, all the time. The command presence is it's huge. And especially, you know, it's for men and women, but I just preach it to the women all the time because I'm like, you automatically are looked at to be weaker. So don't, let's not give them an inch. <clears throat> no, not, not at all. Not at all. And that, you know, um, sort of like a gentle giant, you know, you step out of the car from your first contact, how, how you approach people, what you're looking at, how you address them, all of that leads up to either, Hey, I'm going to fight this guy or B, hopefully I don't have to. Mm -hmm. right and, and how you talk to them and, and all that is learned right pay attention and we you know we've all had uh terrible training officers terrible sergeants whatever right but there is something to learn from those folks right i mean i, I have a lot of you know bad habits that i learned that were awful right and, and but that was good for me as a leader as i developed in my career because i'm like i don't ever want to do that ever right right so so don't be like oh i'm stuck with this guy or gal and he's terrible no learn from him or her Right, learn what not to do, and do you, you know, don't. God, no, I, I wouldn't be afraid to to make mistakes, right? We're, you know, the, the tough part about the culture of policing is we're, you know, we're expected to be perfect, yeah, all the time, every single time, every moment, and don't take yourself too seriously. Admit that you made a mistake. Admit often, hey, I tried something that I really jacked that one up, mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm going to learn from it. You know, that's, that's what this, that's what career survival is like. You want to make it 27 years, 30 years, uh, be honest to yourself, uh, look to your pals to support you, prop them up when they're needed, uh, maintain the most, you know, uh, proficient capabilities that you can as an individual and be a good teammate. Ed, how did you survive the career with such a good attitude that you have right now? So I, with four years on the job, I competed for our special operations command, which was called Metropolitan. Um, and back then there was two platoons of, of crime suppression. So they would handle stuff that was beyond the scope and capability of a normal command. Uh, president comes into town, riots, disasters, fires, uh, crowd control, uh, Democratic National Convention, uh, Lakers celebrations, Academy Awards, all that nonsense would be handled 
uh, by that command. And inside there, there is the mounted unit. They had 30 or 40 uh, horses. Canine unit back then had 16 handlers and the SWAT team. And that's what I wanted to do in my life. I, I, you know, I initially wanted to be an LAPD SWAT officer. I was influenced um, very young in my career, just seeing how they deployed the situation. So professional, um, so articulate, so strong, uh, mentally and physically, so professional. I wanted to do that. And, you know, once I got into Metropolitan Division, I saw the difference in the jobs and fell in love with canine. Mm. Um, so, yeah, in 1999 or 2000, I was accepted into the canine unit after three failures, not failures, just three non-selections. They, they picked somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, and I finally made it in. It was the best job I have ever had in my life, hands down. And I, I don't care what I'll be doing in the next 20 years. That was it. Period. What kind of dog did you handle? So I started off with a Czech Shepherd. Really? Um, yeah, I did. He was awesome. I mean, he was just so methodical, so mature in his searching patterns and, um, you know, differentiating between scent and, you know, didn't worry about chasing dogs, squirrels, owls, none of that nonsense, but very methodical. Um, and he got hurt on a, on a search in the valley. You know, one of the suspects that he was in contact with hit him with a brick in, the, in his spine. Oh. Um, during a contact. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I didn't think anything of it because they're bionic. Mm. Um, and then the very next day, I was just doing basic obedience with him on the, on the canine field and he couldn't like jump over a bag of trash. He was wincing and I'm like, what the hell happened to him? Um, long story short, we, we took him uh, to the doctor. He had surgery and, and he retired. He lived in my bathroom for six months because, mm. you know, he had to wait for his back to fuse and he lived at home with us for a good six or seven years. He From did. there, I went on yeah, no, awesome, awesome opportunities and, and, you know, incredible dogs. And from there, I went on to uh, Belgian Malinois. His name was Axel. I got him young. He was 16 months. He didn't have any basic obedience at all. He didn't know sit, heel, revere, sir. He didn't know anything. So it was so much fun. I worked him for four and a half years. He was an incredible dog. And, and when I left, I promoted. Um, he continued to work for another handler. Really? And that's yeah, that's that's something that's funny too. You know, everyone, you know, dog lovers and everything else. Oh, the dog bonds with you. Yeah, yeah, they do, but they actually bond with the guy or gal that feeds them. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, these are work dogs. Yeah. Um, and and if you bring them to what their release is, you know, physically working, they they don't care. Yeah. Um, but it was so rewarding. I did that for five years. I think it was on almost a thousand searches. I mean, mm -hmm. back then it was it, it was. It was so busy that some days I didn't even come home. I didn't even know what day it was. You'd be on a called out from home. We worked from 2000 to 04. It was an eight hour shift back then. Mm -hmm. And then you'd be on standby for from 04 till 2000. So you're working all night, uh, carjack searches, shooting suspects, burglary, building searches. We were doing about three or four searches a day. Um, for outstanding suspects and wow. you know you'd get, you'd get call, you'd called up at nine o'clock in the morning for a bank robbery search that went down in the valley and back then you know los angeles was the bank robbery capital of the world i think they had four or five hundred a year i mean that was just crazy yeah crazy excitement i was addicted to the adrenaline and the excitement you would just show up at a very chaotic scene an officer involved shooting a, you know another shooting a carjacking a pursuit a car crash that went through a house Mm -hmm. And there's 60, 70 cops, command staff officers there, and they're all waiting for this, you know, goofy two and a half year old Malinois to go find a suspect. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's so much fun. It really was I mean, incredible.
we have i think i think i told you this but yeah we have three we have two belgian malinois and we have a dutch shepherd and my husband handles handles them for the state police and he just like you says it's the absolute best best thing he's ever done and hands down best part of his career yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah we, we were we were so fortunate because the unit was so big you know they we've been through our uh, lawsuits and litigation back in the 80s that uh, crafted it and you know impacted our policy to from find and bite to find and bark um, and just masterful dogs but significant training required our, our training staff there um, is second to none you know I'll be honest with you one, one of the folks there um, Mike Gooseby is a national expert and he just recently retired just incredible knowledge working with these dogs mm-hmm. and you're constantly every single day training something Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. It really was. And do you think because you got to do something that you really loved the, and, and it obviously it, it wasn't handed to you, you had to try out, you, you know, you worked really hard, even though a couple of times you didn't get the position, but do you think that that played in to the fact that you obviously are an emotional, you know, su- survivor of this job? Do you think that that played in like played a role? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, you set yourself up for a goal and I, you know, I think going off on a, on a tangent here, I, I think the most effective thing I've done as a command officer or a senior staff officer is to knock down the artificial barriers of folks that think, oh, I, I can't do that job because, you know, they don't take females or I don't have enough time in the job. Or it, when you actually tell people the truth, Hey, we, we want you, we want you to compete for it. We need you to compete for it. Don't listen to your peers, right? I mean, the criteria to get into special operations is four years in a day and pass a physical fitness test, oral background, um, shooting. And if you can make that, you make the outstanding list and you get chosen. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the informal culture of the organization will say, oh, don't, don't try out for that special ops team until you have 10 years on the job. Right. That, that's the biggest thing we can do as leaders is go up to those young cops and be like, hey, I, I really want to see you compete uh, next year, or we got a great spot for you, or, you know, just give them, um, I guess, open that window for them, right? Because everybody has goals, but until someone actually opens that door for them, it, it's hard to, it's hard to, to do that. And I, I, you know, one of the guys that opened the door for me or just impacted me is um, uh, Tim Anderson. He's actually being laid to rest at Arlington October 24th. Uh, this year he was a retired uh, marine colonel and he was a canine sergeant and i just you know bumped into him working crash in 1996 and just significantly impacted me one of those guys like hey you know we got a spot for you looking forward to seeing you in a year or two so that that has a huge impact and i think that's something that you know very important very very important for everybody to hear and Because especially in today's culture, you can get very caught up, you know, we can get very swept up, especially in social media, right? Especially for, you know, the officers who aren't as busy, they're not going call to call to call, they're spending time on the socials, okay, and they're scrolling and they're getting caught up in the whole idea of like, you know, everybody hates us and, uh, you know, there's no brotherhood and then there's, you know, the job sucks and all these things. And I just think it's really important that everybody hears what you're saying. And it really starts with us. I mean, it really starts with the person it starts with you yourself leading yourself. I was just talking to a client of mine this morning. He is, um, 
he works down in Florida and he's part of the LGBTQ community. And he's actually a, a big leader down there heading um, this sheriff's departments. Um, they have like a whole thing that they do for them. I'm not sure. I can't get into specifics because I don't know about it, a whole lot right. about it, but I know that he has a lot of impact there, but you know, he's, we were talking about the idea of leading, leading yourself. Like you, you've got to stop looking for the person who you want to lead you and you've got to lead you because that's just what you have to do as a leader. So stop looking for somebody else to lead you when you, you start doing that and start leading other people. And, um, and, and the impact will be significant, just like you said. And I think, I think it's important for all of us to hear Ed, I've been sitting here thinking and wondering, I've got some questions that <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been asked before, but I'm just going to ask you, have you ever seen, um, the TV series Southland? Yes. Is that anything like LAPD? Like, would that be like what I would be like? Yes. Uh, very accurate. And I forget the folks that were actually advisors on that show. Really? Um, but it was, yeah. And I, I can tell you, you know, the, the movie, um, colors with Robert Duvall and yes. Sean ben, back in the day that, that was. South Bureau crash. I mean, obviously sensationalized, but the relationships, you know, for the, the older officer and the younger officer, I mean, 100% accurate, that type of description. And the activities back then w w was very much the same, you know, working a gang funeral, trying to prevent drive-bys. I mean, cra craziness. What so, about yeah. End of Watch? Did you watch that? So the, the crazy thing is I was the captain of that division, uh, Newton, when that movie came out. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, and we had a, a special screening uh, downtown at the no Nokia Center. And again, the, the banter, the relationships between, you know, the partners and the cops, uh, you know, what goes on in the roll call room, that kind of stuff was spot on. You really? Know, oh, yeah, clearly. Um, you know, the banter between officers and relationships and what they're focusing on as young cops, um, you know, but, but clearly sensationalized you know, some of the action scenes and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was, it was awesome. And that, you know, that command was uh, Newton Street. Um, and, and one of their, their mottos was shooting Newton. I mean, it was, it was something that we, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. And, and, you know, long, long story short, the community actually gave that, um, I guess, moniker to that command. It was, it was home to two of the biggest shootouts in, in LAPD history before the uh, North Hollywood bank robbery shootout. Really? Uh, yeah, the Patty Hearst uh, shooting and the SLA shooting uh, back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, mm -hmm. crazy. And yeah, I just want to touch on one point. I, you know, don't listen. I can't say don't listen to social media because it's captivating. And I actually just got on my first social media. I mean, Instagram I, It's my first thing I opened up. I, I've been trying to keep up with my my son and daughter. And it's it's funny. I'm, a, I'm an IT caveman for sure. Um, but, but it is, it's tough for, for young cops and, and tenured officers not to pay attention to that stuff. But I can tell you um, from experience, right? We work in some of the most violent parts of, of South Los Angeles and, and you know, we were hated in, in certain sectors, but we were loved as well, right? Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many canine searches I've been on walking down the side of a house and you know, some lady would peek her head out and just kind of po you know, point like, hey, the, the guy's under there, or check the trash can kind of thing, right? I mean, so there's so many people that don't post on social media. There's so many people that don't protest that are just the silent majority that do, they, they do love us, they do need us. Yeah. But it's at greater risk for them to support us because now everybody's got a cell phone. So, I mean, don't, 
don't pay attention to that, those negative naysayers. Make your own path, believe in your integrity, take care of each other. And, and I'm a firm believer in, you know, the pendulum will swing back. You know, we're, we're certainly at a, at a point right now in law enforcement that we've been at before. Mm-hmm. And and we can recover, and we will. I, I believe still in in the democracies and the systems and the oversights. It will come back. It will swing back. I mean, it, it just has to. And, and historically, it has. And we we we've been in this position in the '60s. Mm. So. Yeah, I think that's really refreshing for you to say too, and and especially you know someone who's you know been around for a minute and seen some things and done some things. And I I, I do think that's quite refreshing. Uh, especially for the younger generation to hear that, you know, the pendulum will swing back and that we have been here before, you know, that social media will tell you, Oh, you know, you, we've never, it's never been like this. And it's, this is the worst we have ever seen it. And I'm sure like for some people it is, they're not lying. This is what the worst they have ever seen it be. Right. But like you said, historically, I mean, we have been here before. Yeah. And I, I don't, um, I, I've always been biased you know, in, in my career, I don't know if it was from, you know, the Marine Corps early on or what, but if you stood up and, and were going to tell me or teach me something, you had damn well better know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, if someone's bloviating or, you know, typing away as a, as a keyboard ninja and, you know, you know, down with the police or the, Hey, look, man, who, who are you? Mm-hmm. Right. Where, where have you been? Have you even ever sacrificed yourself for somebody else? If right. not, you know, no, thank you. Right, not really interested. So I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in that. And again, it's it's one of the biases I, I I have going through my career and training and schools and all that nonsense. I immediately go to the bio, mm-hmm. and if whoever that you know guy or gal is standing in front of me, if you don't have the bona fides, I just shut you off. And that, that's a it's not a good thing. It's just one of my faults. But I don't know. I don't really think it's a fault. I actually I think it's a, I think it's a, especially in today's day and age and the keyboard warriors and. Um, me and my people know that they come after me all the time because they don't like the things that I have to say. And, um, and, I, but what you're saying is just so true. It's like, you know, the, the keyboard warriors who come after me are typically, they live in their mom's basement <laughs> and they, you know, yeah. so it's like, it doesn't even matter. Like, you know, nothing. <laughs> so I, I, I like that approach. Um, Ed, as we, you know, wind down, I have a couple of things that, um, that are on my mind that I have got to ask you. Um, and I'm sure that the listeners want to know, and they'd be so mad at me if I let you get off this podcast with me and I didn't ask you, um, would you be willing to share with us, you know, some call or a story or something like that stands out to you? Like one of like the worst call or the most like a call that stands out to you that you've ever had, um, you've gone through in your career, 27 years in LAPD. Is there something that you could share with yeah, us? Yeah, there, there, there's so many, and I try and you know focus on the funny times, right? I mean, I I laughed so much um, as an officer sergeant, and I tried as a command officer to you know laugh with my pals. So many funny things go on out there, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's 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 tragedy too. I mean, I remember two or three weeks on the job, there was a discarded PD, uh, you know, in the trash can in, in Watts. Mm. Um, you know, we did everything we can. It was still alive. We put on the hood of the car, waiting for the ambulance to show up just to keep it warm. And, you know, there's so many terrible and tragic things that everybody experiences, whether you're in Bangor, Maine, or, you know, Helena, Montana, or South Los Angeles, we experience the same nonsense. Um, but some of the most gratifying, I mean, I, I can tell you right now, I would take my kids to work and my wife, um, 
you know, when I was a captain and above, I would, you're kind of required to come in off hours, check on your folks, you know, be seen, fly the flag. So I always take my family. Um, and some of the things they stumbled on is, is just, just uh, crazy. I probably shouldn't have, but it was just, just one of those things. I, I remember um, as a, I would drive around the city, we'd take them, you know, we'd go get something. And I could always navigate the city, not by freeways and streets, but like memories. Like, hey, I found a guy under a house over here, or I was in a search team and the guy was on the roof, mm-hmm. or the helicopter found the guy over here. And I would just be telling these stories just because there's memories that flash in my head as I go through the intersect. It's not like I'm, I'm just, you know, trying to impress people, but that's how I remember this stuff. Right. Um, I, I think the, you know, some of the funny times were certainly with canine or, or the special operations folk or an air support uh, flying around, absolute uh, scientists and experts, incredible capabilities. We had a fresh uh, murder in the city of Elmani that came into Rampart and he killed uh, his mom and his wife with a kitchen knife. And Rampart cops pick him up and they're southbound on the 110 freeway right through downtown. It's like 21, 2200 at night. Wow. So we're paying attention to it at canine. So the suspect gets out in the middle of the freeway, five lanes each way, and just runs. Right, helicopter overhead, helicopter loses him on an overpass, and now freeway shut down and they're waiting for that you know, goofy two and a half year canine to get out, right? <laughs> so I, you know, at, and at nighttime, you know, scent rolls downhill. So we start to run the embankment from the freeway, as opposed to if it was daytime, you know, we'd be up on the, on the top because uh, scent rises. So we're working the bottom and I can't call this dog back. He continuously goes to this uh, underside of an overpass. And they're like, no, no, the airship had the guy over here. He's in this pile of bushes. I'm like, okay, dude, but I'm telling you, Mm-hmm. I'm like juicing my dog with the electric collar. collar. I'm like, hey, come he's on back, coming. come on back. He's not coming. And he's going, he's doing circles, right? <laughs> and, you know, sure as shit, as, as luck would have it, you always, you know, trust the dog, follow the dog. Yes. The dog doesn't have an ego, right? The cops That's are like, it. I lost him here. I saw him, he's here. Okay, I, I believe you, but let's, let's work to work. So we search and nothing, right? They're like, okay, maybe the guy jumped in an irrigation ditch. I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe hyperspace out of here, but let's go back to where the dog had him. And sure as hell, you know, the guy was hiding up there, uh, laying down and we gassed him out. But just, I mean, so many funny things and, you know, just seeing the reward in the dog and, and working with your pals, it was, it was, it was great memory. So the, the great memories and the funny times certainly outweigh, you know, the tragedy and shock and trauma. And I, I think, you know, the reason I'm not saying I, I was lucky or successful, but I survived the 27 years with my health is because I found the humor in it. Mm. right you, you got to laugh at yourself you, you got to laugh um and it's just a, a way that we deal with uh, stressful situations so so find that time you know to, to laugh at yourself or laugh at, laugh with your pals yeah I think that's important I think um you know we don't do that uh as a culture as a society we don't laugh nearly right. enough you know oh 100 I mean I I I can't, you know, I, I try to now that I'm retired, but I, the best times in my life is when I was crying, laughing, mm-hmm. right? If you could think back with your friends or pal, I mean, that, that is such a great feeling. Yes. And we did it so often. It was, uh, you know, that, that's what propelled me through. That, that's what, that's my, uh, I guess, adrenaline. That was my drug. It was, it was a lot of fun for sure. And so Ed, like, what do you, what do you do now? You're in retirement, like in you're in, but you're working for Fletzy, correct? I am. Yeah. So uh, Fletzy basically trains all the federal law enforcement agencies. There's, I I think, 103 of them. And and every day I'm learning a new 
um, acronym and agency. I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, everybody has them. Uh, oh, yeah. the US, US Mint Police, IRS, Marshals, ATF, uh, Secret Service, Uniformed, FBI, Uniform. I mean, every, every, there's, there's so many agencies. I, I think they touch about 75,000 uh, new agents and officers uh, going through their facility. I mean, so it's, it's an incredible, incredible operation. Um, wow. Yeah, so I'm thankful just to be uh, working there. And I'll be honest with you, um, when I got hired, it, it actually was made it easier for me to step away from a career that I love, right? I, I think mm -hmm. it, you know, to a fault, it, it became part of my identity, I guess. Mm -hmm. and, and when you leave that just cold turkey, it's, it's, it could be tough. And now, you know, being at the law enforcement training center, I see these new kids, these new agents that are just like so happy to have a job, so thankful, um, so excited. And, and it's just fun, you know, from afar to watch them and, and still kind of be connected to that, if that makes sense. So are you, you were an instructor there? So I was, yeah. I started as a instructor with behavioral sciences, teaching, interviewing, um, and interrogations and that kind of stuff. And then I just, uh, last year, was promoted to the chief of the Leadership Institute, which does a lot of advanced training, um, you know, leadership through understanding human behavior, uh, crisis leadership, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of what that group of folks is focused on. And I'm just, I'm just managing people at this point. They're, they're, they're doing the expert teaching and I'm just, you know, making sure that they have what they need to, to get it done. And so, Ed, what, where are you going to go from here? What's, what's the plan? Where are you headed? Cause you're I, not, a, I don't think you're a guy to just stand still. <laughs> no, I, 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 I forgot, how, you know, just very thankful to be um, connected with, uh, you know, e Eagle Rise speakers. That was an incredible opportunity for me. I never saw myself in that environment, that position. Mm. Um, you know, like I said, I've never, uh, talked about myself or, you know, given, you know, speeches, I've just kind of done my, done my thing, taking care of my folks and, and got promoted. I, so what's next for me is taking care of my two young kids. I got a 16 and a 14 year old, which are incredibly busy and successful. And I, I want to be there for what's important to them, mm. you know, um, relationship stuff, um, sports, you know, ups and downs. And, you know, my, my wife carried us through, you know, all those years, she was, you know, the stable, um, I, I guess the, the, the stable rock for the family, right? Because I was all over the map. I, I think, you know, the last, my last year, I got called out as a, as a special operations commander 150 times. Wow. Off hours, right? So you have your work day, and then you're getting called wow. to you know, a SWAT barricade, an officer-involved shooting, hostage rescue, whatever that nonsense was, and you're you're gone. I mean, you, it's uh, it, it took its toll. So mm -hmm. I, I want to be there for them, and what that looks like, I don't know. And I, you know, I, I sit and reflect, and I, I I think one of the personal struggles that I have is is I haven't had the opportunity to find out, you know, what my hobbies are. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I don't even know what I like to do. Right. If I, if I wasn't to work that that's the weird thing, because mm -hmm. I was so focused on just the job, the churn, paying attention. There's so many crisis events. So, so, so much drama. You're not even really focused. I mean, I, I, I was, was thankful just to keep working out. My wife's a CrossFit instructor. She keeps me in shape. And mm -hmm. but I, I, I'd like to find what like I want to do yeah. as a person. So, so that's my that's my challenge. I, I love it. I love it so much. And, and I appreciate you taking the time to 
talk with us a little bit and share some of your wisdom. And I just really hope the listeners can hear uh, just even in your voice and your attitude. Um, actually, I, I, I've talked to um, several um, career cops, I could say, and um, your attitude is very refreshing. And I think that we can all learn from that. And, um, and the last thing I would just like to add, is there anything that you would like to, you know, leave our listeners with? I, I just be true to yourself. You know, I, I was fortunate to navigate an incredibly scrutinous environment. Um, and I never, I, I never operated or, or worked a position wanting to go somewhere else. Um, so if you concentrate on doing the best damn job at where you're at, enjoying where you're at now, the next door will open, right? I mm-hmm. mean, for instance, I didn't even want to promote when I was in canine. I had uh, back surgery in 2003, and that was kind of how I was kind of forced. A buddy of mine actually told me, hey, they're going to retire you. You better take the sergeant's test and get a higher pension because they're going to fuse your back and retire you. I'm like, what? I never even thought about that. One thing led to another, and, and, and here I am. I mean, stay, stay true to yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, admit your mistakes often. Explain what you want to accomplish, and, and don't be afraid to fail. Uh, you know, stay grounded. Find that, whatever that is at home that balances, right? Uh, my father told me this. He said, you know, you got to be happy going to life or going to work, and you got to be happy going home. Mm-hmm. And, and I stole that every roll call I talked at that's that's the priority right I, I needed my cops to have a, a level head and and be happy leaving work as they are coming to work and, and that's your burden as a leader to make sure that that happens that's incredible and amazing words to live by thank you so much Ed where can the people find you on your new social media <laughs> oh so EJ underscore uh, pro cop that's my uh, first Instagram first uh, so that's my only uh, social media uh, capability or eagle rise uh, speakers.com for sure and pro cop is p-r-o-k-o-p correct yes Awesome. Well, we'll put a link down so that we can all go and follow you (laughs) uh, on your new adventures. And uh, I look forward to talking to you more, Ed. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.